work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription well i know it's hard to believe but this is the fourth annual past and the curious holiday special and i know it's even harder to believe that it's the end of the year 2019 was awesome. Thank you so much for being there with us. We released a book called The Meat Shower. We had some great times with some great friends. We had some awesome You Have 30 Seconds segments. Maybe you had a favorite story from one of our episodes. If you did, I'd like to hear about it. You should tell me. Oh, also, my baby turned one. So, like, I did all of this with a baby. That's pretty awesome. And I have some great friends to thank, too. Uh, They know who they are. Thank you for your help along the way friends are great this episode has one of my favorite stories if not my favorite story from the lewis and clark expedition and if you know anything about me you know that i love the lewis and clark expedition there's so many great facets to the story but that's not all there's also a man who wrote a classic of literature which was also a classic movie he did some other things before that so let's do this the lewis and clark expedition was pretty much the original road trip There was camping, grilling out, a ridiculous amount of mosquito bites, and a large group of men who did not have much opportunity to bathe. So when they picked up Sakagawea and her baby Pompey near Fort Mandan to join them, she was probably a little worried about being with a bunch of smelly guys who thought nothing of rubbing themselves with rancid bear grease to keep the bugs away. But at the time she officially joined them, the temperature was below zero. So, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, and the men were probably a long way from maximum stinkage. When the co-captains, Lewis and Clark, originally started preparations for the journey in 1803, they gathered their chosen men, supplies, trading goods for the Native Americans, and as much non-perishable food as possible. They didn't know how long the trip was going to take, so among other things, they weren't sure of how many Christmas presents to bring. It was at Camp Dubois near St. Louis that they spent their first Christmas together while waiting for the spring thaw to start their journey. According to Clark's journals, three Native Americans joined them for a celebration and the men frolicked and hunted all day. That spring, when it was warm enough to finally start heading to the Pacific Ocean, a mere 2,300 miles away, the men were sure to look pretty sharp. Since it was a military operation, most of them had uniforms, and the co-captains were no different. The red-trimmed blue coats and white woolen waistcoats and trousers they wore were the most splendid of all. And in hindsight, you would probably agree that they were overdressed. If you know anything about wool, you know that it's less than ideal for hot summer days. But as they went on, they found that their clothes were wearing out, tearing and more commonly, 
just being very uncomfortable. But out there in the West, they were several decades away from the existence of a department store, so they had to improvise and adapt. They wore clothes for weeks on end, and when those wore out, they started making pants and shoes and overshirts from the hides of the animals that they ate. Oh, and they ate a lot of animals. While working their way through the Great Plains, the men typically stuffed as much as nine pounds of meat into their hungry mouths a day. Lucky for them, there was a lot of game to hunt in the plains because these bowling ball-sized portions were pretty necessary. They were burning calories like today's professional athletes. Now, you might think the big boat they had made it easier to travel on the river, right? Yeah, you'd think so, but you would be wrong. The big keelboat inconveniently needed to move in the opposite direction of the Missouri River's current. It was rare that there was enough wind to push the sail against the flowing water. So while some men spent their time navigating the snags and brambles of the Great Plains to hunt and supply the expedition's men with their daily ration of buffalo humps and beaver tails, the rest of the men found themselves working up nine pounds of hunger by wading through the muddy shores with ropes as they pulled the giant boat up river. Since the Missouri River is the longest river in North America, this was an exhausting job. Imagine the relief the boat haulers must have felt when they finally stopped for a winter break with the Mandan Indians in the area that is now North Dakota. After building a fort on the riverbank, which they named Fort Mandan, they set about to trade with the Mandan villagers, stay warm, and plan for the next leg of the journey. It was here that they met a French trapper who had been living in the Mandan village on the other side of the river with his young pregnant wife, Sakagawea. Now listen, to call her wife is pretty unfair. She was only like 14 and was actually purchased from a rival tribe as a slave of sorts. It's kind of sad, but we don't want to take anything away from the fact that Sakagawea was 100% awesome. There were many times she proved her bravery and skill and made herself a million more times valuable than her husband ever did. He was actually kind of a coward if you read the journals. But anyway, knowing the journey was far from over, Lewis and Clark agreed that they could use some help for the mysteries that lay ahead. Charbonneau, the trapper, his not-really-wife, Sakagawea, and the baby that she would give birth to before they left were enlisted to join the expedition. Before they could continue, though, they would have to wait again for a spring thaw. The winter of 1804 was rough, like most in the area. The river had frozen solid, and the men recorded temperatures as low as negative 41 degrees Fahrenheit. This extreme cold didn't put a damper on Christmas celebrations, though. They actually just finished building their fort around December 23rd, and the co-captains requested that their new Mandan friends leave them alone on Christmas Day so that they could celebrate and relax together. On Christmas Eve, possibly hinting at a hankering for some spicy pies, Lewis and Clark gave each of the men flour, dried apples, and pepper. It would appear that the better gifts had already been used or traded away, Yet the men were undeterred, as William Clark awoke on Christmas morning to the firing of rifle. Never one to break up a good party, he allowed them to fire the cannon on the boat three times in celebration. The rest of the day, the men hunted or danced, and by 9 o'clock, everyone was happy, tired, and possibly full of spicy pie. 
Once spring finally came, the expedition continued up the Missouri River, though the boat, loaded with specimens and letters for Thomas Jefferson, headed back to St. Louis with a small detachment party. The remaining party struggled on foot to the Rocky Mountains before finally getting some horses from the Shoshone Indians, the group that Sacagawea had actually been kidnapped from. The Rocky Mountains were no easy trek though, and after going without food for days, some of the men began to wonder how those poor horses might taste. With no game and just the occasional berry bush, they were a long way from the nine pounds of meat that the Great Plains had provided them. Luckily, they made it to the village of the Nez Perce Indians in the nick of time. The Nez Perce, with who they became great friends, offered the starving men plenty of ideal alternatives to horse meat. By the time they finally accomplished their goal of reaching the Pacific Ocean, it was time to start thinking about building their winter fort. Fort Clatsop, as it was named, would be their last winter fort because their return journey to the east side of America would be much faster. It's amazing how quickly boats can make it downriver when you are following its current and not fighting it. And one last winter fort meant one thing, a final Christmas together. And despite the foggy, damp cold of the Pacific coast, the party started early again. Just like the year before, Clark awoke to the sound of celebratory rifle shots and the men shouting tidings to the fort in general. Of course, this far into the journey, there was little left to give as gifts. Nearly all of their supplies had been used long ago, lost in capsized canoes, or traded to the many Native Americans they had met over the last two years. Even their feast that day was described by William Clark as a bad Christmas dinner. Our dinner consisted of poor elk, so much spoiled that we ate it through mere necessity, some spoiled pounded fish and a few roots. Despite the group having very little left, William Clark also managed somehow to reel in quite a haul of Christmas presents. One man of the expedition, a private woodhouse, got crafty and made Clark a brand new pair of leather moccasins which would certainly come in handy on the long walk home. Sacagawea surprised him with two dozen weasel tails. As if those weasel tails weren't enough though, Clark made a journal entry about a gift he got from his friend and co-captain Meriwether Lewis. This gift was the gift to end all gifts, and most certainly what kids today still cross their fingers in hopes of any time a wrapped gift is set in front of them. Clark wrote, I received a present from Captain Lewis of a fleece hosiery shirt, drawers, and socks. Now socks are socks, as you certainly know. And as for hosiery shirt and drawers, well, he's mentioning unmentionables. Can you believe it? He got underwear for Christmas. The looming question I have, though, is where did this underwear come from? There were no trading posts mentioned in any of the journals, and certainly no general stores along the route, so it stands to reason that these were not fresh new undies. These guys were using everything they had, so it sure seems like Lewis gave him a set of underwear that he had already worn. Gross. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, o'er the fields we go, laughing all the way. Pell 
bells on Bob Tail ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Holidays come with many traditions. There are Christmas pickles, there are crazy gifts in crazy catalogs, and there are even dried bladder balloons. And there are window displays. Since we've covered the first three of those on previous holiday specials, we think it's time to talk about that last one. Imagine strolling down Main Street of most towns in the 1880s. General stores were a common sight, and they carried all of the necessities that you might need. Flour, coffee beans, basic clothing. They might also sell soaps, candles, and dishes, but while those last three might make a store of the 1800s sound like some fancy trendy shop you'd find at the mall filled with hundreds of varieties of pleasant-smelling objects and fancy displays, rest assured, they were not. These stores were dimly lit, as there was no electric lighting, smoky on account of the cast iron stove in the corner for heat, and filled with a hodgepodge of things and barrels and boxes. The shop owner just counted on you coming in because the shop was probably the only or at least the easiest place for you to get what you needed. If they had a window outside, they almost never made an effort to decorate it with an eye-catching assortment of the possibilities the store contained. Somewhere along the way, and I'll tell you where in a minute, people started thinking of these windows as an art form, as a way to appeal to people with eye-catching displays that would stop people in their tracks, gather crowds, and fill their minds with the fancy ideas of objects to buy that they probably didn't really need anyway. An artistic appeal to their senses might tempt them to spend, or at least convince them to spend money at your store rather than the competition. Now, perhaps in your life, you've seen an extravagantly decorated window display. Walking down the street or even inside of a mall, you might have squished your nose up against the cold glass to peek at a scene set up just inside the shop. Maybe there was a miniature train traveling around a mountain of wrapped presents, or a plane flying on a string, or an orchestra of stuffed animals dancing to holiday music. Now, if you've never seen such a thing in person, it may be something you've seen in pictures, or in movies. If not, trust us, people have decorated some windows in some very extravagant ways, and they usually want to make you see what's inside. In more recent times, window shopping has been big, and during the holidays, even more. 
In the 1900s, companies did whatever it took when it came to getting the attention of passersby. Maybe you've heard of Salvador Dali. He was a Spanish painter who painted some pretty wild stuff. His style is described as surrealism, which, in a word, is bizarre. His art often looks like things you might encounter in one of your strangest dreams. Things like melting clocks, animals with human legs, or even people with plants for heads. It's pretty crazy stuff. Despite the unusual art, he was actually hired once in 1929 to create the window display at New York City's fancy women's clothing store, Bonwit Teller, on Fifth Avenue. Like all of his art, it was pretty weird. And that's great in an art museum, but it didn't really grab the holiday shoppers of Manhattan. So when the artist got into an argument with the store manager about taking it down, the fight ended with Salvador Dali and a bathtub, which was part of his weird display, both crashing through a window onto Fifth Avenue. This did not stop Bonwit Teller from working with other artists in the future. They also hired pop artist Andy Warhol to design their window displays a few years later. But the road from dry goods stores with cluttered windows to world-famous artists designing displays was a long one. And in a way, it was paved with yellow bricks. Just follow me, and you'll see what I mean. Lyman Frank Baum had a lot of jobs, and he was pretty okay at most of them. He loved plays and worked as a set designer. He even owned a theater for a while. But when he left the East Coast of America, he was raising a family, and he needed a job with some stability. He opened a store all the way out in Aberdeen, South Dakota, which he called Bomb's Bazaar. And according to the local paper, when it opened in October of 1888, it was filled with a magnificent and complete assortment of art and pottery, decorated tableware, bohemian native glassware, parlor, library, and table lamps, baskets and wickerware, toys and immense varieties, the latest novelties in Japanese goods, plush oxidized brass, and leather novelties. So come on down. But those sweet goods and toys, not to mention the plush and oxidized brass, wouldn't keep the doors open for long. A drought hit the area and left the farming community with little money to spend. And to make matters worse, a boatload of holiday gifts that he had ordered were never delivered because they sank to the bottom of Lake Huron. He took his family and split for Chicago. Before long, he got a job as a traveling salesman. And in doing so, he saw all sorts of stores up close and personal. And he got a strong sense for what worked and what didn't work when it came to appealing to customers. Frank also realized that there were plenty of stores that could use some help making their stuff look good. So he launched a magazine. Now I know what you're saying. This sounds really boring, and there's no way enough people would care to subscribe to a magazine about how to decorate your shop. What could there possibly be to talk about each and every month? It's a window. You decorate it. Well, I'm going to tell you two things. One, it was wildly successful, so there. And it helped him earn enough money to support his family. Oh, but point number two, believe it or not, 120 years later, the magazine is still in print. It's called VMSD now, which stands for Visual Marketing and Store Design, but it is the very same magazine that Frank Baum started. Now, around the time that he was able to kick back and enjoy his sweet shop window magazine money, 
the Chicago World's Fair was opening. The site of the 1893 World's Fair was called the White City because a beautiful city of bright white buildings inspired by French boat art style architecture was built in no time. It was almost as if the giant building sprouted from the land that had once been a swamp. Locals were amazed to walk among the incredibly ornate paths, landscapes, and ponds. And as a world's fair, it featured the most exciting and advanced creations the world had to offer. People flocked to see the latest and greatest, including an early version of the fax machine, a moving sidewalk, the first Ferris wheel, and even working examples of the first kindergarten classrooms. This sort of stuff was right up Frank's alley, and he took his family there many times, perhaps too many times if you asked his family. They'd walk until they were exhausted by the summer heat to see the sights, smell the smells, eat the food, admire the technology, and be inspired by the buildings. And inspired he was. The fair was open for only six months, which is crazy when you know how much work went into it. But despite the locked gate, the ideas were wide open in Frank's head for many years after that. And within a few years, he started work on two books. In 1900, Lyman Frank Baum could claim the remarkable feat of having both of those books published to the world. And let me tell you, that ain't easy. I'm just trying to get one published. If there's any money out there with leads, let me know. The first book that he wrote was very similar to the magazine. It's called The Art of Decorating Show Windows and Interiors. It's actually a pretty cool book. There are tons of images given as illustrations and examples, and it's like looking back into the past, mostly because it is looking back into the past. In fact, it's so cool, we'll post a link to it on our website. You can check it out. The book is also filled with ideas and theories on how to decorate your store, which is something that businesses spend millions of dollars on today. Very early on in the book, he writes that, Advertising and selling goods would appear to be very distantly related to art, but actual demonstration proves the contrary. He's saying decorating a store and appealing to a customer is a lot like art. But that's probably not what was going through Salvador Dali's head years later when he and his prop bathtub crashed through a window on Fifth Avenue. Now, his show window book was a successful book, but not as successful as the other one he published in 1900. Inspired by his love of fantasy and inspired by the white city of Chicago's World's Fair, he created another city, an Emerald City, which, of course, you get to by following the yellow brick road. That book was called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Well, there you have it. 2019 is a wrap. And that was our fourth holiday special. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening, as always. It's so great that you're out there listening. I have some people to thank, actually. I need to thank Sophie, Jack, and Sophie. Sophie, Sophie, thank you so very much, Sophie, for your Patreon sponsorship. And hey now, I can't forget about Abby and Emily in Ellicott City, Maryland. Ellicott! Abby, Emily, Maryland. Abby, Emily, Emily. thank you for your Patreon sponsorship. Abby and Emily, yes. The rest of you, I want to thank you too. Yeah. Hope you have a great holiday season and let's all make 2020 a great year. 
It's a privilege and one of the great joys of my life to do this for you. Thank you. One weird day in 1876 in Bath County, Kentucky, meat fell from the sky. Meat? 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 Meat! Yes, meat. And in 2019, we were weird enough to write a book about it. Not just any book, because we can't do anything normal. What we decided to do is pretend that the only surviving piece of meat in the world, which really does exist, yeah, we made him the narrator of our story. I can't wait to share it with you. It is called The Meat Shower. It is available now as we speak, or as I speak. I don't know if you're talking right now or not. As you listen and as I speak, it is available now. You can go to our website, thepastandthecurious.com, or the publisher's website, earlyworkspress.com, for more information. The Meat Shower.